Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So those words that we just sang and the words that Jesus just gave us are absolute foolishness by the wisdom of this world. I'm trying to remember a time where um, Micah 6 has been a lectionary reading where I haven't preached from it. And then I'm certainly trying to remember a time where the Beatitudes were our text and I have not preached from it. I can never remember a time when Matthew 6 and the Beatitudes, and I'm not preaching from either one of them. I think it's for a few reasons. I think one is because um, there's a word and a truth in the epistle reading from Corinthians that I think cuts right to the idols of my own heart. And I think cut right to the idols of many of us. I also think that if we don't hear and get some understanding of the upside-down foolishness of God in the message of the cross of Christ, we really can't understand things like the Beatitudes. We really can't understand words like Micah telling us to, that our call is to have mercy, to love justice, to walk humbly with our God. So Corinthians presents me with a real problem this morning. I think if we actually hear it, I think uh, Corinthians presents most of us modern minds with a real problem. I think Corinthians is a particular problem for Charlottesville. The message of the cross is foolishness, Paul says. I have spent a lot of my life trying to not be foolish. It's in, you know, perhaps pedestrian ways, but some of it is very, uh, cuts very much to the root of my faith. I've shared enough about my story for you all to know that um, I had an interesting background, as many of us have. I was thinking this week about many of the things that I heard in different venues as I was growing up that I came to think were a bit foolish. One of them was this fear of science. Did any of you grow up in, a, in an environment that seemed afraid of science? Um, there was a really strong, absolutist commitment to a 6,000-year-old earth. And I remember the kind of arguments that would try to be marshaled to make certain that we knew that this was, this was the, the only way that was possible, and if we didn't believe this, then the whole faith would just crumble and fall to a million pieces. One of the explanations was this global flood, and that something happened in the flood that so changed the environment and the fossil record that everything since then is just sort of science can't even judge it. And I remember one fellow coming and talking to us about this, 
And he was so convinced of this that he told us that if we wanted to know what the world was like and what it looked like prior to the flood, what we needed to do was go buy blue blocker sunglasses. And if we would all go buy blue blocker sunglasses, we could look out and we could see what the world looked like before the UVA rays from the flood messed everything up. And this is why the world is 6,000 years old. And you know what we did? We went and bought blue blocker sunglasses. They were very soothing to the eyes. I don't know what they told me about life before the flood, but they were, they were nice. Uh, in the 80s, we had the early 80s, we had the big scare in our youth group of um, backmasking to rock music. Does anybody remember this? If you don't know about this, so um, some of the songs, if you play them backwards, they have secret messages. <laughs> and the big one at the time was Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, which is problematic all on its own. But if you play it backwards fast enough and at just the right speed and you're listening just the right way, you can hear Led Zeppelin say something like, here's to my sweet Satan. Can I tell you, our youth pastor had a filled day with here's to my sweet Satan. Weird Al Yankovic, he kind of got on the bandwagon um, doing his own spoof. And one of his songs, if you did it backward, it said, Satan eats cheese whiz. (laughs) 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 It was pretty good. I'm not going to go into the things that perhaps are more personal, and not because I don't want to share my personal things, but because I, the point isn't the details, because things that might seem foolish to me might not seem foolish to you. Things that seem foolish to you might not seem foolish to me. But I will say that as I grew up and I, and I stepped into the world of my own, began to think for myself, as I began to have doubts and questions, at some point I've made a vow to myself. I didn't realize I was making the vow, but I made the vow. And that vow was, I'm not going to be foolish. I'm not going to give people any reason to think I'm foolish. If I ever feel foolish, I'm going to hide that foolishness. What is most dangerous to me is that other people might perceive me to be foolish. For some of us, especially in a town like Charlottesville, the idea of being seen, and that's a really important part of this, of being seen by others, as foolish, it terrifies us. Some of you might know that hideous moment when someone asks you, and usually not with a lot of baggage, just a genuine question, hey, have you read, do you know about And all of a sudden, internally, there is the scramble. Do I? How how do I admit if I don't? What do I say? I was in a conversation recently, and someone mentioned some um, important idea. And what I immediately felt the impulse to do was to say, oh, I know that. There was no reason for me to say, I know that other than my own ego that wanted to make absolutely certain that person would know they weren't telling me something I didn't already know. Because I'm not foolish. Whenever there's a a political flashpoint, a disruptive current event, some of us have massive fears that others will think we're not on top of it, that we don't know exactly what's happening, that we don't have the right take. When I was doing my PhD studies at at UVA, it took me about half of a class period to realize I was the dumbest person in the room. 
And we were in the introductions, and all I realized, all the blue blood schools and all of the degrees. And then as soon as class conversations started, like the words, <laughs> the big, big words. <laughs> and half the time, I did not know what they were talking about. The particular program that I was in had a lot of background in philosophy. I had almost no philosophy. What am I going to do with that? Now, let me say very plainly that the scripture, in speaking about the foolishness of Christ, it's not arguing for ignorance. It's not arguing for bad logic. As God's image bearers, we have been gifted brains. And refusing to use our noggins is not a virtue. However, Paul does insist that true, deep wisdom has God as its source. And this true, divine wisdom will inevitably look like foolishness, according to the ways we've learned to judge wisdom. Our wisdom is too tribal. It's too shriveled. It's too anemic. As Paul says a little bit after our reading today, we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature. But not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak God's wisdom. Deep wisdom has a source, God. We do not arrive at wisdom on our own. We might arrive at knowledge but not at wisdom. It is a lie of the modern project to believe that we are all isolated, autonomous thinkers who sift through all the material and make judgments out of the pure vacuum of our own reason. That is ridiculous. This gives me a moment uh, to perhaps speak a pastoral word that I'm pretty passionate about. It's not uncommon to hear, of course, not from anyone in this room, but it's not uncommon to hear something like, I'm not going to try to influence my kids concerning their beliefs in God. I'm going to let them arrive at their own conclusions on their own. A very biblical word here, hogwash. Someone says, so you mean you're trying to indoctrinate your sons, you better believe I am. Everyone else they will encounter in this world, school, friends, books, movies, music, Washington, science, sports, every one of them are attempting to indoctrinate my kids. And I am not going to allow the things that I believe are most true to go silence, thinking that somehow each of us just arrive at things on our own. Wisdom is something that is given and received. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, Scripture says. I implore you, if you are a parent... We're not talking about bad logic. We're not talking about force. We're not talking about manipulation. But we are talking about taking the treasures of our heart and our soul and refusing to be silent about the things that are most dear and most true. 
we are to give our children the truest and the best. And then we release them, yes. They have to make up their own minds. Sometimes they may not fully agree with us. They're going to have to come to their own place with God. Absolutely, that is all true. But I, as a dad, I'm going to do my part to help them learn to love God. The cross is the foolishness of God because the cross itself is a symbol of shame and degradation. In the first century, the cross was ultimate debasement. It was the end of humanity. It was the death of personhood. The cross in the hands of the Roman Empire was intended to annihilate one's dignity. It's why they hung the criminals, and usually they were the political criminals. It's why they hung them on the road, naked and exposed to jeers, bodies exposed to the most grotesque, the most grotesqueness. It was because it was shaming. It was the worst death you could die. Whenever those two violent men took Matthew Shepard out to the field in Laramie, and because he was a gay man, beat him nearly to death so that five, year, five days later he would die out of brain injury. What they did was they tied him to a fence, his arms outstretched. And the New York Times said this was in every way a crucifixion. There was a reason why this beloved child of God was killed in that way. It was an attempt to humiliate and degrade. This is exactly where Christ went for humanity. This is exactly what God of the universe does out of love. James Cone insists that if we want to get closer to the true degradation and shame of the cross, the image we need to ponder is the lynching tree. On the cross, Jesus was tortured and hung on his own lynching tree. The cross is the foolishness of God because this notion of a suffering God, one who surrenders his power to defend himself, the God who would forgive those who would kill him, the God of selfless love, that is a scandal and it is foolishness. Even in our moment now, there is nothing more scandalous to the human mind than forgiveness. But here we have a God who would rather die than let others die. A God who would allow himself to be murdered. Forgiveness for those who were not even asking for forgiveness. The word of the cross, Fleming Rutledge tells us, calls on the Christian community to embrace struggle on behalf of others as a way of discipleship. It is absolute foolishness to see the cross and to think that this is God's way of loving and rescuing because it is a complete degradation of everything you would imagine a human, much less a God, to be. The cross is the foolishness of God because it defames the twin powers of human reality. What Robert Jensen calls the political empire, 
Rome, Greeks, and religious self-assertion, Judaism. Religious forces conspire with political forces to murder Jesus. And Jesus actually, in real human history, defeated them both. And this is a, a, a dangerous place because over the course of history, many have taken some of these words to only fuel anti-Semitism. This is a word back to us. This is what we do. Karl Barth wrote about how this is not merely a word about history in the past. This is what the best of religious people do. Not the worst. The very, very, very best. Jesus himself was a Jew. Paul, who was writing, was a rabbi in Judaism. This is what we, Christians, this is what we do. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus, who Jensen calls this one, this one lone Jew, defeated them both. On the cross of Jesus, the bluster and disguises of this world's power become mere illusions, Jensen says. The cross is foolishness because it's all God's doing and none of ours. We pose, we hide, we work very hard to appear accomplished, to have the answers, to achieve morality, to look good. We work very hard to show that we are smart, that we have the right theological stance, the right political stance, all to save ourselves from ever appearing foolish. But the cross is the foolishness of God. And if we are to follow Jesus, we will have to abandon the illusions and the image. We'll have to abandon the lie of self-effort, the lie that our smarts, our knowledge, our tenacity will save us from the shame, the nothingness that haunts us. We are fearful and we are anxious because we are so committed to maintaining the illusion of control, the illusion that we are not foolish. It is only the foolishness of God that could say words like we heard Jesus say today in the Beatitudes. And that opening line that really sets the tone for everything we hear afterwards, blessed are the poor in spirit. So you who feel utterly spent, you who are poor, you who are broken down, you who've lost heart, you who feel nothing inside but a cavernous abyss. You who don't know the answers. In God's kingdom, you're blessed. That is foolishness. What seems foolishness to us is actually wisdom. God's wisdom confounds those of us who would pretend to be wise. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And there is a kind of surrender that has to happen in this that feels like an absolute breaking. 
We want to cling to our sense that we can manage how we look and how we feel and our safety and how we come across and our future. And there is a kind of abandonment of our life to God that will seem like it costs us everything, and it will. But it's the way of life. So let me close with offering a pastoral confession and a pastoral challenge. I am very aware about the suspicions around pastors these days, especially if you happen to be a man, especially if you happen to be white, and there are really good reasons for this. I'm aware of the skittishness many of us have around the church. I'm aware that there are lots of theological triggers. And when I am not very centered, it is very easy for me to give in to the fear that I'm just going to say the wrong thing. Fear that either because of my ignorance or simply us understanding things differently, that I will step into some social or theological quagmire, that I will be labeled oppressive or unenlightened or ignorant. For me, that really is about a fear of being foolish. And it's very tempting when I am not walking in the Holy Spirit to try to rally intellect and wit and fresh thinking to be overly cautious with my words so that you won't think that I'm just a backwards preacher. Get that roll of the eye, maybe your little bit of seething anger, the emails on Monday. And I'm not saying that that happens all the time, but it happens more than it should. And when I operate out of that posture, I am not preaching the foolishness of Christ. It doesn't mean that I'm always going to be right. Of course not. But that kind of cannibalizing fear that you just can't say the wrong thing has nothing to do with the witness of Christ in the cross and resurrection offered in humility and trusting the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ's word and even make up for my own mistakes. Because we all know that I will make them. It is, I think, a genuine calling of my heart and of our church to create generous space where we're thoughtful, we're accepting, we're listening. But sometimes I'm aware that if I push in or challenge or step into one of those landmines that are out there, well, that goodwill dissipates very quickly. I don't really know exactly what it means, but I want to just say again and hopefully again and again that it is my desire, often falling short, to preach to you the foolishness of Christ. A challenge. Some of us, and I'm aware that it's not as many as it used to be, our church has grown more diverse in this, in this way at least, but some of us have defined our faith by deconstruction dismantling those things that we were taught that we now believe are foolish. Deconstruction may do a wonderful job of freeing us from the destructive or toxic thinking of others. Please hear me, though. Destruction is absolutely awful at freeing us from our own destructive or toxic thinking. Left to itself, 
deconstruction sets us up as the independent arbiter of truth. But truth, like wisdom, is given and received. It is not self-manufactured. Freedom is a gift, and God is the giver. We need the Holy Spirit to deconstruct for us the false ideas that we've taken on about God. But we don't need to follow the mad path of believing that we can arrive at true knowledge on our own. It is wisdom to allow Jesus' cross and resurrection to deconstruct for us false images of God. But it is lunacy to set ourselves up as God's judge. The foolishness of Christ is wiser than human wisdom. What we heard this morning is actually Paul saying something even more profound. Wisdom is Christ. Christ defines wisdom. We don't have some self-sustaining category out here in the world called wisdom that we go over and move into and from that place judge whether or not Christ is true. Christ is wisdom. Christ will deconstruct false images of God. Thanks be to God. And it's true. The image that some of you have been given of God is a lie from the pit of hell. But we are released from that, not by our own maneuverings. We are released from that by the witness of the cross of Jesus Christ, which is foolishness to the wisdom of the world. May we be free in the foolishness of God. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.